My name is Monica Kaufman Pearson. For 37 years, I work for Channel 2, WSB TV, Channel 2 Action News. The things that stick out most in my mind as an anchor, because I didn't cover the stories, I actually introduced the stories that the reporters did. And then, always at 10 o'clock, it was my voice that said, you know, it's 10 o'clock, do you know where your children are? It has never, never left the consciousness of people who were living here during that time period. And even people who were children then still talk about it. And I really knew it was a big deal when white parents were afraid that their children were going to be grabbed, even though it was only African-American children. It was this fear all across the city that any child could be abducted and murdered, and we wouldn't know how to handle it. It was almost paralyzing. And then it became a Chamber of Commerce moment, because Atlanta was really burgeoning then, growing. You had this mayor who was just bigger than life, and Maynard Jackson was that, who was doing so much to grow the city economically and nationally and internationally. Foremost among our problems, other than the need for increased interracial cooperation and communication, is crime. Regardless of where we live in Atlanta, whether it be Buckhead or Beaverslide, Peachtree Hills or Perry Homes, Cabbage Town or Collier Heights, Carver Homes or Cascade Heights, regardless of what one does for a living, regardless of the insularity one's money may afford, everybody is crime's victim. And we all must make certain that this dread disease does not cause our great city's demise. What's happening? I'm writer, researcher, and professor Dr. Regina Bradley. I'm music journalist Christina Lee. From WABE and PRX, this is Bottom of the Map, taking hip-hop conversation in a new direction. The Atlanta missing and murdered children cases took place from 1979 to 1981, with 30 cases of black boys, girls, and adults found dead throughout the metro Atlanta area. 2019 marks 40 years since the beginning of that time period. So, Chris, I feel like this particular episode speaks near and dear to my heart for a couple of reasons. One, you know, when we first started talking about putting together this podcast, one of the immediate topics that came to mind for everybody involved, whether it was us or super producer Floyd, was we need to do something for the child writers. And I think that, you know, in addition to the renewal and the reopening of these cases by, you know, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, um, who was, you know, grew up during that era, I think that's important, is that a lot of these children who were growing up during that time period are now um, good and grown adults. There has been renewed interest in not only the city about the case cases, um, but also in, in popular culture and media. Um, do you have any, you know, any thoughts about why? Why you think there's a renewed interest? Well, I think it's particularly interesting that the uh, cases of the Atlanta missing and murdered children kind of get treated as an undiscovered story. I think when it comes to like listening to the music, 
We also have to remember that there is some residual trauma from having endured the Atlanta Child Murders. Musically, that was my first introduction to the Atlanta Child Murders, was wow. listening to The Dungeon Family. Um, and interestingly enough, it wasn't even The Dungeon Family. I'm taking that back. It was actually listening to uh, Growing Pains on Ludacris' album. Oh, tell me more. And it was like, you know, I think Fate Wilson was like, you know, kids are getting di- stabbed and dished out there too busy playing. And I'm like, what's going on? What do you mean kids getting stabbed and ditched and what kind of hip-hop is this Mm -hmm. so it makes me wonder like how the music is not only a memorial for these kids but also like how it was the sounding board for newer generations who might not have been immediately affected or even born because I wasn't even born during that time period but I mean like it's Mm -hmm. still such a significant influence that it continues dare I say to haunt the music today in any other situation this would have been something that I would have learned about in a textbook. Right, right. This would have been something that I would have read about before moving from Maryland to Atlanta. Hip-hop really became the entryway. It became the textbook. It became the textbook. Not only is is the music, particularly Southern hip-hop, a reclamation of these events and these experiences, but it's also an opportunity for them to share what they were feeling, to share those vulnerabilities and those sides that um, otherwise got lost. And the other thing I'm thinking about too is is that hip hop was the first thing for me. But as you know, as an English PhD, I also got introduced to the other areas that the child murders were remembered in, such as James Baldwin's "The Evidence of Things Not Seen," Tayari Jones leaving Atlanta, Tony Gay Bambara. Those bones are not my child. But like you know, for folks who don't want to read. Hip-hop is a way for them to get those many history lessons uh, in less than 10 minutes, but also probably be more engaged and more inclined to be like, let me go and let me go and Google it. Let me go and read it. So it's like an introduction to a newer generation about this trauma that's continuously evolving and reappearing in, in many different ways. And I really want to emphasize the point that the city of Atlanta didn't become a hip-hop city. It didn't become a music city in the 1990s with the arrival of Outkast and Southern Playlisted Cadillac Music. Like, if you listen back to our Outkast episode, we kind of talked about how Atlanta is this musical genealogical city from, like, brick to organized noise. Uh But, I mean, you know, Atlanta was a funk city. It was a disco city. To do this right, we had to get a little bit of help. So we went and talked to Dr. Maurice Hobson, who is an associate professor of African-American studies over at Georgia State, because you got to give the whole title when you talk about academics. And uh, it was really great just to hear him talk about how that rise of the Atlanta music scene ran parallel to this, you know, kind of like setting up for what happens during the murders and how the music really is not only just a soundtrack to Atlanta about what's going on, but also socially and politically the changes that were taking place in the city. So check out Dr. Hobson. I don't know. I came up in the town, they were murdering kids. And dumped them in the creek up from where I live. Body, spotty, spotty, sprinkled around. We running through the sprinkler looking around. Edward Smith, Alfred Evans, they were the first two. Eddie Duncan was the kid that my family knew. His body found on March 31st. Blessed be the man who walked with a curse. Latonya gone from her home. Mr. Wayne helped put adolescent faces on the 2% milk boxes when it was school before plastic had a chance. From a glance, you can hear my stance. I'm off the porch camp. What's going on in Atlanta is that in 1969, Atlanta elects its first vice mayor, who is Maynard Jackson. And then he he basically thumbs his nose at the, the, the old guard, the black old guard. 
and he emerges as the mayor of the city of Atlanta in 1973. And of the state of Georgia. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. Miller. And what he does in this is, I mean, this is uncharted water for the American South, is he basically creates a new kind of enclave for, for, for black folk in terms of Atlanta's notoriety as a black mecca is based on three things. Black education, the Atlanta University Center, black economics, the Sweet Auburn District, and then black political empowerment and electoral politics. And that starts in the 1940s. But Maynard Jackson's ascension in, in 1973 really is kind of the cherry on top to kind of present, you know, the best and brightest of what this black mecca actually means. And as soon as, as Maynard gets in office, one of the things that he does, Maynard Jackson was an excellent student of history. One of the things he does is he's reading all of the literature that's coming out of Newark or coming out of black power. And, of course, um, this conversation around black power is a political movement. But then you have the creation of black art, which, you know, a lot would articulate that with uh, Amiri Baraka, uh, Larry, yeah, Larry Neal, you know, all of these different uh, really cultural characters that argue that or present that black art is the expressive arm of black power. So you have a political movement and then you have this expressive movement. It captures, you know, the popular culture that that surrounds and, and really situates the popular political sentiment of a people. So what happens with this is Maynard decides that he's really going to first and foremost give 35 percent of all city contracts to minority contractors which means he's producing a lot of millionaires. But another aspect of it is to take a part of that tax, the, the tax bracket and shift some of that to creating the Bureau of Cultural Affairs, which is now the Office of Cultural Affairs, um, whose job was to support experiential local art. What's going on in the city of Atlanta is particularly during this time, I mean, you know, the 70s and 80s, you have cities that are putting money into cultural things to kind of keep kids off the street, like to keep them, you know, engaged. And so that's one of the things that the Bureau of Cultural Affairs did was that it created these local um, talent shows. But what's also very interesting from this too is that it's during this time that Maynard Jackson and his first wife, Bunny, are, are divorcing. Bunny Jackson Ransom had had real success in uh, public relations, particularly in terms of corporate sponsorships and, and all kind of different things. And she's realizing that, you know, with this divorce, that she has to kind of chart a new, a, a new way of income, you know, and survival for her family. So she creates the first black-owned PR firm called First Class Inc. So this is 1976-ish. And... Uh, what she does in this, I mean, she does serious, you know, corporate work for McDonald's, Coca-Cola, you know, some of the local, you know, franchises around here, the, the, the city's uh, Bureau for Trade and Industry and all that kind of stuff. But one day she gets a call from Billy Ellis. So Billy Ellis is a uh, promoter, a uh, jazz musician, working at the time he was working closely with Donald Byrd and the Blackbirds. And, and what he does is he calls Bunny and says, I got this group in Atlanta that's like really hot. And I really think that they should, you know, get a contract. And so Bunny's like, well, I don't know anything about getting a contract, but I know who does. And so what Bunny does is she calls the legendary Clarence Avon. Uh, at the time, uh, Clarence Avon had revamped himself and was president and CEO of Taboo Records and wires Bunny 
$200 to put this band, uh, it's called Santa Monica, into the studio. Avant loves them, signs them, and they end up being the SOS band. An SOS band, I mean, SOS is, is the Atlanta sound. I mean, like, this, they are homegrown Atlanta talent. Well, what happens with this is they end up um, opening for the Isley Brothers. And, I mean, they're on a national tour. And the SOS band was having so much success that Larry Blackman, who's the headliner for Cameo, decides that he's going to call Bunny and says, if you can do that for those country boys, I will move to Atlanta. And so basically, you have all of this artistry, this, this kind of soul and funk, this kind of black sci-fi aesthetic that's moving to Atlanta because Atlanta is virgin territory. What also happens is later on, Bunny Jackson Ransom marries Ray Ransom a brick, the, the, the funk group, who Sleepy Brown's father is in the group. You begin to see like Bohan and James Brown, uh, Otis Redding. You just begin to see this kind of, a, this Georgia sound morph, Gladys Knight. With all of this, the thing about it was Clarence Avant was a political friend of Maynard. But Bunny being an ex-wife was able to kind of parlay a political relationship into a personal relationship or business relationship to help kind of really create this, this Atlanta sound. The cool thing about like down south folk and like funk and soul and our, uh, you know race music and all that kind of stuff is I mean all of it emerges out of the American South. I mean those cats who are making stuff in in Detroit from Motown they from Alabama. I mean you know Stax Records and and that's Mississippi all day. Then you start going out west and you get that West Coast funk. That's Louisiana and Texas. You know Georgia has this thing that's going up to New York. So we're talking about great migrations. We're talking about all of these kind of conversations. Well. When Larry Blackman moves to Atlanta, one of the things that takes place is that in 1973, Governor Jimmy Carter, uh, who later becomes president of the United States, passes this Georgia tax incentive law. It's like a tax incentive music digital law. And I can give you the exact name of it in just a second. So it's called the Georgia Film, Music and Digital Entertainment Office, which emerged with a subsequent tax incentive. It's a statewide initiative. Maynard makes it a citywide initiative. Then Jimmy Carter goes to the White House and then it becomes kind of implemented as kind of this national model. And what comes out of this by and large is like black expressive culture. So it's interesting that we're dealing with this because that's beginning, that's, that's the beginnings of us leaning to understanding how Atlanta is moving forward as this kind of production of black popular culture. 
And so cats were moving down here. I mean, Manny Jackson's making black folks rich. So it's like this kind of mad dash for Atlanta. But what also is taking place at this point in time is that the known, the victims that you all know of, and I'll, I'll leave it at that for right now, um, I would argue that there are way more victims than the 30 victims that the public knows. Some will say 29, I actually have 30. Um, the, one of the common denominators between them is that a lot of the young men were interested in being in this music industry. So what, what happens is, is like in order for you to represent your, your, your neighborhood, you had to like prove yourself as being the best talent in your neighborhood to kind of step out there. And of course, you know, all there are all of these young promoters, these uptake promoters who want to be the next Barry Gordy. They want to find the next Jackson 5. And, and this is the interesting thing about it. When I was growing up, uh, I'm, I'm in my early leaning towards mid 40s. Um, when I was growing up, every person that you knew, even the roughest cats that you knew, wanted to be an R in an R&B group. I mean, they were trying to croon like the Temptations or New Edition or Troop or Be I'll Be Sure. Couldn't sing. I mean, they would go get their hair permed up and waved up and it would be all this kind of stuff. And so the interesting thing about it, the same way, I mean, this whole notion of like hip hop being so hard, like that's kind of a new development because when I was growing up, cats wanted to be like crooners. They wanted to be like Spoken Robinson or or, you know, a, a Michael Jackson or somebody. And so when you begin to kind of look at some of the commonalities, you begin to understand that the talent, a lot of the victims were in some kind of way connected to these talent shows. And that becomes one of the major issues in this whole piece. And so even some of the victims that fall outside uh, of what we know of as the Atlanta child murders, what we begin to see in that is that this music industry, this virgin, new booming music industry is at the heart of that. Dr. Maurice Hobson of Georgia State University and author of The Legend of the Black Mecca is basically laying out how Atlanta was creating two reputations for themselves. Mm. One being a post-civil rights Black Mecca and the other as a music Mecca. So he's laying out the influence of the funk scene and he's laying out basically how Maynard Jackson laid out the infrastructure from a city standpoint uh, to create those reputations. So as Atlanta is pushing these narratives forward, uh, Goody Mob is really the group out of Atlanta to put these tidy narratives to rest, right? Mm -hmm. They sort of come to represent the duality that Atlanta um, sort of embodies uh, once it is um, positioning itself as a post-civil rights black mecca. I mean, we're um, with its 1995 debut, Soul Food, um, they are the working class, they establish themselves as the working class group of the Dungeon family because they are really sort of talking about how they are having to navigate Atlanta at a time where it's positioning itself as a black mecca. Like specifically, they're saying that this isn't a black mecca for all. Lord, it's so hard living this life, a constant struggle each and every day. Some wonder why I'd rather die than to continue living this way. Many are blind. 
Can we talk about Thought Process for a little bit? Because, I mean, I, it's one of my favorite songs, but it's also, like, my husband's very favorite song. So. Hi, Roy. Hi, Roy. Uh, but it's like when he, but I know, like, if Thought Process is playing when I get home, he is in a mood, he is in his feelings, <gasps> and I need to, like, just leave out for another hour, hour and a half. That's I know, very true. I know he's having grown man feelings, vulnerability type of shit, and uh-huh. I think that that's why Goody Mob is so dope, is that in ways that, like, folks could connect to Outkast for, like, this idea of the party music and, like, oh, there's things about them we can connect with, Goody Mob was adamant about being like, first of all, we grown-ass men, grown-ass young men. What does being a grown-ass young man mean? well you know you feel frustrated irritated like Cujo goes through the whole list of things and it's like you know it's exactly what you're talking about like these social anxieties that working class um, young black men young black folks in particular were facing in the city during that time period you have like this campaign to make everything glittery. Oh, Atlanta is the city too busy to hate. Like really pushing that. Um, folks are starting to look at them as a, for, as a you know, quote unquote for real city. And Goody Mob, like their function is to be like, no, hold up, pause. We're also still dealing with a lot of this other shit that mm-hmm. you can't just push under the rug in favor of presenting this pristine idea of Atlanta as a city. And I mean, arguably it would be like, because Goody Mob was so oriented on Atlanta, that that's the reason that they couldn't push out. But Mm -hmm. I think that that wasn't what they were intended to do. Of course you want to be, you know, you want to cross over and be successful. But for them, they were like, we're not going to lose sight of who we are and where we came from. And thought process is a really strong example of that, especially, like, if you're listening to, like, the the verses from CeeLo. Like, he's he's giving you this, like, coming of age narrative. He's like, you know, I want to tell you it's all good, but I can't. Mm-hmm. I want to say it's all good, but it ain't. I want to tell you that it's all good, but it ain't. It's niggas hurting and uncertain about if they gon' make it or not. That's why we got niggas killing, feeling like they coming up off a little dope they sold. You can get some gold, but we won't make it as a whole. Because without you, there'd be no me. And without no unity, there would never be any happiness. You can smoke a pound of sex, and it still won't really. You know what I'm saying? These things hurt. Like people like talking about like that hurt that's still there, not being able to to function. I think is is a really good part of that. Um, but also, you know, Goody Mob is a reflection of like that immediate aftermath of the the child murders on music. Right. Like it works through like, okay, what are some of these anxieties that I'm still carrying with me that I got from being a kid that came up during the era of the child murders? Like, you know, what is it like to have like one one name? evokes so much terror like what what does it mean for 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 young black kids to be terrorized and i think that goody mob is an example of what that means coming out of that hey what's going on this is regina so question for you what do you want to hear us talk about on future episodes of the podcast go to bottomofthemap.media to share your thoughts and tell us a bit about yourself we're trying to get all in your business again that's bottomofthemap.media holla that brings us to miss dd hibbler now dd hibbler you, you, probably, you folks, especially if you guys are hip-hop fans, you already know her voice even if you don't think that you actually know her. Because if you go all the way back to the beginning of Outkast discography, 1994, Southern Playlist of Cadillac Music, it doesn't begin with Big Boy's voice, it doesn't begin with Andre's voice, it begins with her introducing herself as the one and only Peaches. Miss Peaches if you nasty. Shit show feel good. <laughs> hey, players. This peaches. 
So Southern hip-hop fans may best know Dee Dee Hibbler as the voice of Peaches, uh, but behind the scenes, she was also the manager for Organized Noise Records, and most importantly, just like everybody else in the Dungeon family, she was growing up during the era of the Atlanta missing and murdered children, so she was very much of the mindset that she could have been one of those victims. Rather than try to tell her story, we all wanted you to hear from this delightful woman herself. Let me take you deep, straight to the point, because it ain't nothing but king shit all day and day. I met those guys when they were like 16, 17 years old, and I was the adult. You know, I was like 25, 26 or so in like 92, 93, around in that era. And, you know, for them... You know, it was it was subject matter that, you know, we talked about in the dungeon. You mm-hmm. know, we talked about about the killings. And I know Timo was really had his family was affected by the killings. Um, um, so it was what they talked about in their music, because it was part of all of our growing up. It was a common thread and that we could all as we got to know each other. That was the one thing that we could all relate to Mm. was how scared we were during that time. So it was natural that that came out and and is still today prevalent in a lot of their rhymes. But that that scene, that hip hop scene at the time, you know, we were we were older. You know, we were coming into our adulthood and the scene had changed. There was always um, great conversation going on, great thought provoking conversation. these guys, I, I just knew that they were special. I just and once I came there for the first time, I knew that I was never going to leave. You know, I was going to help wow. see this thing through, and uh, help them, you know, realize whatever dreams that they were were trying to, you know, it just have. You know, so it was special. It was a really good vibe, and it was always creative. There would always be some type of beat in the background, and you would always hear somebody e- either in the corner rapping or down on the mic rapping, or, you know, just Ray and Rico and Pat left. There was always laughter. Um, Marquez, who wrote Waterfalls, you know, he's a jokester. Like, he was always pulling pranks on people. You know, but then there was also really serious, thought-provoking moments. There were some songs that you said stood out to you that came out of the Dungeon Family Mm -hmm. Collective that remind you or that speak to that time period that really stick with you. Mm-hmm. You want to share those with us? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, the most obvious one is Thought Process. Oh, man. You know, and, and Dre's monologue at the end of that song where he talks about, you know, the only thing we feared was Williams Wayne. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that was probably the most, that that's when we were like, you know, something, something, cops and robbers when we used to play right, you know, that we were just all kind of silent because he spoke to it. So you when know? you shared that with y'all, y'all were just like... Yeah, when we heard it, like, it wasn't, you know, for me, it was when I heard it. Okay. Because I would go home, wake up in the morning, and come hear things that I, that were made in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Like, because I'm, t- I'm the one that gets up early. So I need to know whatever you did last night, put it over here in a pile, what I got to do, you know, who played on what, you know, <laughs> so mm-hmm. that we can sort this thing out. While y'all sleep, I'll just handle all this business. But I remember hearing Thought Process in the studio... And like, just wow, you know, like he really spoke to the moment. It was finally being addressed. Like we were getting ready to open a book that was shut closed. Like somebody had the courage to say something about it. Mm. You know, like we were finally in a position to be able to address some of these things. And I was surprised that he 
felt free enough and open enough to talk about it and address it in a lyric and in in a monologue a monolithic moment you know where you are going to hear this Mm -hmm. because the only thing behind it is hand claps and finger snaps that was such a powerful moment for me you know like, like this is like church yeah you you for a minute you went you took a deep dive into his soul and you understood the things that the thing that impacted one of the things that impacted him the most and that was being scared as a little boy in Atlanta as an outcast, I was born, was it one of the harm that would come to meet me like met like, but yet like none Sent me through a lot of ups and downs like it ain't nothing Like elevators, but I ain't the one that's pushing the buttons I got off at the 13th floor When they told me that it wasn't one They said it's get from 12 to 14 Still smoking, still drinking No, I'm sitting on the link at 4 a.m. Thinking that in reality the world is like a ball full of players We trapped off in this maze with walls made up like it's an only prayer It's the tightest game that you can have The devil's taking a swing that might is the broken glass, but my crystal ball see the pistol fall to the wayside. Nobody would die in cops and robbers when we used to play right. Huh. Only thing we fit was William Wayne. Never thought about hitting licks or slanging cane. Did not think I'd be the one to give into abortion. Label me murderer because my ass is scorching. Hot from the Glock that sits under my seat. Yeah, it's real fucked up that my folks come to get me. And it's like that. Yeah. I think it started like around 1979, mm-hmm. so I was 12 going on 13 to be exact. So I was kind of, you know, embarking upon my teenage years, and I have a younger brother. So um, for me, it was, yeah, we were scared, but I also had to look out for my brother and his friends who were like my little brothers. A little bit as we grew up, we moved to, I guess, the better part, what was considered a better part of Decatur, which is kind of like over by the Southwest Cab area, um, Boring Road, uh, Flat Shoals Parkway, down up in there, Wesley Chapel. Mm-hmm. We moved over on Wesley Chapel and Boring Road. You know, we thought that, you know, things would be a little bit better. I was a little bit older. But um, they found one of the little boys, Joseph Bell, I believe, right like down the street from where we live. And that was extremely frightening. And, you know, it was frightening to know that you know although these things were happening in city of Atlanta proper in areas of around to know that you know they're dumping bodies on the east side was scary and then one maybe not so obvious to me is mainstream and and even though it may not do it's an indirect there's still that influence there. Yeah, because there's a splash. You hear the splash in the water. If you listen to that song when it comes mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. y'all know what it is. You know. Revolutionary, scary, thought-provoking, spoken Spoken. words of a change I don't feel, but I see visions from me at 23. There's newer songs that are obvious, but from the early days of Outkast, those two stand out the most to me. Because I remember how I felt when I first heard them. Wow. And there was a healing. There was like, okay, you know. Because I know you said that, you know, Timo... It really affected him mm-hmm. directly, but um, we we talked about this before. Is that 
um, the way that Andre delivers that anxiety that he still carries around about that seemed yeah. to like it it evolves in a really interesting way it's like okay i'm talking about this because i it's i, I was a first-hand witness to this like right. i was going through this so when i think about like Quimini, mm -hmm. and you know his whole his whole vibe changes on on his line for that because you know he's real boisterous he's like right. about bad life you know what I'm right. saying? leave me the fuck alone i'm a grown-ass man and then he right. gets to talking about you know them babies walking slowly to the candy lady mm -hmm. his whole vibe change it changed the entire mm -hmm. song so cut that big talk let's walk to the bridge meet me halfway now you may see some chilling dead off in the pathway just them poor babies walking slowly to the candy lady it's looking bad, need some hope, like the words maybe, if, or probably, more than a hobby, when my turntables get wobbly, they don't fall, I'm sorry y'all, I often drift, I'm talking gifts, so when it comes you never look I mean, that too was a very pivotal moment, and it really spoke to it, because like you said, you know, you, you, you had this sense of accomplishment and elevation, and yeah, we, you know, we popping out here in these streets, but I can take it right back real quick. Real quick. You know, and remind you of where we came from, the thing that still haunts us to this day, and the thing that still is in the back of our mind as we raise our kids. Like, mm -hmm. it's not just because we grown. That doesn't mean things have changed. Like, my kids couldn't go to people's houses. We all raised our kids pretty much together. collectively together. Mm -hmm. But their friends came to them where we lived, um, myself and Ray, we it, we lived on like eight acres of land. There was a studio there. So all the guys, when they came to record, would bring their kids over. You know, now we have not just, you know, the, the, the remnants of the Atlanta child murders. You've got sex trafficking out here right, that is real. Right. So, you know, we live this. Right. All you hear on the, on the news, it was ha every day we were hearing something bad about somebody. And then... It's, it's just something that will never leave me because, you know, I was I was one of the lucky ones, mm. you know. Yeah, you survived it. Yeah. So, yeah, I was one of the, the few, the, the lucky few. You know, there's others that didn't make it. Aaron Jackson Jr. was among the youngest, only nine years old. Luby Jeter was 14, Timothy Hill, 13. Patrick Baltazar, 11. For almost two years, the bodies have kept coming out of Atlanta's rivers and woods, and week after week, police speak of sorrow and sympathy, but not a solution. It's just a, a tragic, horrible night. We all sat down to watch the news. The news was prevalent. At 10 o'clock, Monica Kaufman is on there. It's 10 o'clock. Do you know, know where your, your children, children are? are? You know, so we wanted to know what was happening. Monica Pearson, then Monica Kaufman, was the anchor at WSB Channel 2. Here is Monica Pearson herself sharing how asking that question most nights came to affect her as a news anchor. When we first started seeing children showing up in places dead, at first no one really thought it was a serial killer. Um, it was just children, one place or another, having been murdered. It wasn't until you started looking at the similarities that it it hit everyone. This is not just children uh, indiscriminately being killed. This is someone who's actually going through the black community killing young children. And at first, I think everyone kind of said, well, let's hold up a minute before we, we really go out and say this is a case of missing and murdered children. But then it got to the place where you could not ignore it because the numbers just kept growing and growing. And the, the 
ways in which it happened seemed so similar that all of a sudden it was, we have a problem on our hands. And that was a problem, too, in terms of coverage, because in the beginning, everyone seemed to have this feeling that that I didn't agree with, that these are children from certain neighborhoods who are out raising money in ways that may not be good. Uh, they tried to paint the victims as almost throwaway kids. And all of a sudden, you saw people going, wait a minute, these are our children. These are black children. It doesn't matter what their economic status is. We need to find out who's doing this. So again, 10 o'clock, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? Because then we were asking parents to be responsible uh, for their children, not blaming the parents of, of the victims, but saying these children were out at a time that was not good. Uh, do you know where your children are? They always tried to paint the parents as either being on welfare, and some of them were, but there were intact families, too, with a father in the home. So I was really concerned and, and would often advocate, you know, if you're doing these stories, make sure you profile the parents as parents and and victims, too, and not as you should have been watching your child better. <laughs> which was so easy for people to do. They almost wanted to blame the parents. And, and that was very disconcerting to me. Atlanta's aspirations to become the Motown of the South had been long spelled out, right? right, um, right. You don't really get to a place where hip hop is memorializing the Atlanta child murders without you know the infrastructure that is being built during this particular time period. You don't get to a place where Atlanta is a music mecca without understanding some of the sacrifice that came with prioritizing certain communities over others, the sort of discontentment that the music would come to represent. One of Atlanta's biggest legacies is this music, and thinking about the child murders through music is so important to how we understand its lasting legacy today. Thank you for listening to Bottom of the Map, brought to you by WABE and PRX. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. It'll help more people find this show. Follow Bottom of the Map on your social media platforms at BOTMPod. Again, that's BOTMPod. Bottom of the Map is hosted by Christina Lee and Dr. Regina Bradley. Produced by Floyd Hall. That's me. Edited by Stephen Key. Our executive producers are Jaanne Barry and Christine Dempsey. Ayana Taylor is our project manager. Our theme music is produced by Smith and Cash. Special thanks to Mike Johns and Lois O.G. Reitzes. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Follow, subscribe, connect. Holla. I love you, Roy. Yeah, boy.